Welcome to the CJC Weekly Bible Study, where CJC stands for Complete Jesus Christ. If your perspective of Jesus is based only on teachings from the New Testament, then your understanding is incomplete. Regarding what we often call the Old Testament, Jesus himself said, These are the very scriptures that testify about me. So won't you join us today in our study where we esteem the newer and the older testaments alike. I'm your host, Jeff Smith, and currently we're working our way verse by verse through the first book of the Bible, Genesis. Genesis, Genesis chapter 32 is where we're at today. We finished now 31 chapters of Genesis. Last time we met together, we finalized Genesis chapter 31. And you remember the main story that we looked at over there is basically Jacob was able to cut his ties with Laban. Uh, That's, I mean, right where we left off. Jacob and Laban had come up with this agreement that they set up a pillar, set up a pile of stones. From now on, I won't cross this boundary to harm you. You won't cross this boundary to harm me. And may God be here in this place to watch over you and I to make sure that we behave accordingly with one another while we're apart. And that's where we left off. So he's burned his bridge. He is now leaving Haran. He's left Haran. And he's heading back home. God has called him back home. Back home. By back home, I mean back to his mother, his father, and his brother. You remember his brother. Uh, they didn't part on such good terms. In fact, that was the reason that Jacob left in the first place. Because his brother was breathing out murderous threats to kill him. Uh, that's a good reason to leave home, I suppose. Self-preservation being what it is, I decided to leave home. You remember that mom said, though... That, you know, my favorite boy, I will send a message to you when your brother's anger has passed for what you did to him, by the way, was the language that was used. But I'll let you know when your brother has settled down a little bit. I'll let you know when he doesn't want to kill you anymore and you'll be able to come back home. He has never received that letter. She has never sent that word. We have no record that there was any ever any evidence or news that the brother that Esau has calmed down. There was never any news received that Esau no longer wants to kill Jacob. And now Jacob is heading back in that direction. And it's been 20 years. Uh, Time heals all wounds. Uh, Well, maybe not. (laughs) In some cases, time exacerbates some situations. And in this situation, for all Jacob knows, that could be what he's heading into. So he has now completed with Laban, but he's not out of the woods yet because now he's got to deal with his brother. There's some reconciliation that needs to happen. And there's some maturity that's gone on in Jacob's life. We remember seeing Jacob fleeing from his brother before he even met Laban, that God met him on the way. You remember in Genesis chapter 28, God met him out in the field. He lays down, he makes himself a pillow out of a rock. And then in that night, there's a dream, a vision he has. God appears to him. There's this ladder, this staircase between heaven and earth. And the angels of God are ascending and descending on the staircase. And the Lord is there himself and the Lord appears to him speaks to him jacob wakes up in the morning he's like this is an amazing place i'm going to call this the house of god this is bethel he sets that pillar up as a place to commemorate and and that was a big deal that was a big vision that he had seen god had appeared to him basically said i'll take care of you and jacob when he woke up the next morning you remember his sentiment was basically i'm worried about how i'm going to eat i'm worried about how i'm going to be taken care of what about clothes shelter employment you know basic necessities of life was what was on his mind And he made a pledge to God, God, if you'll take care of me and take care of the basic necessities of my life, 
then I will be yours. I'll give myself over to you. Well, here we are. That was the beginning of his adventure in Haran, the 20 years in Haran. And here we are, 20 years later, he's coming back. And what do we see in verse 1? Somebody mind reading out loud, please. Verse 1. So Jacob went on his way, and the angels of God met him. Jacob went on his way, and the angels of God met him. Thank you, Gabriela. Here we have God appearing again. Here we have the angels appearing again. The angels of God, that phrase, angels of God, there's only one other place in the entire Old Testament that appears. That phrase, angels of God. And the other place that it appears is in Genesis chapter 28. It's in the story when God appeared to Jacob when he was fleeing his brother, when he was heading to Laban, when he was heading to Haran. And now we see it at the end when he's leaving Laban, heading to his brother, heading away from Haran, heading back to his, his land, the land that God had promised him. It's the only two places in the entire Old Testament that this phrase, angels of God, appears. So it conjures up in the reader. The observant reader says, wow, that's really interesting. It's, it serves as kind of an inclusio. It kind of takes those 20 years that happen over here and it says, I gave you the start and I gave you the end. That was the cover, the front cover. Here's the back cover. We're closing the chapter then on being over with Laban. We're closing the chapter on being in Haran. It's now time to go back to the promised land. All right. So Jacob's on his way back to the promised land. The angels of God meet him. And I'm really excited because anytime I see, you know, this appearance of God to somebody in the Bible, I want the details, right? I want to know what it's like. What is it? There's a staircase? Ooh, you remember the last time. There was a staircase. Well, I want to know what the staircase looks like. Is it covered in gold? Is it fiery? What does it look like? So I want to know the details of what this one looks like. Uh, so let's read verse 2 and let's see what it says about the details. Somebody might reading verse 2. Jacob saw them. He said, this is God's camp. And he called the name of the place Mahanaim. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. I'm missing something here then. Where are the details? <laughs> I don't see any details. Zero. Esther's holding up a big fat zero right there. Verse one is all we get. This appearance of the angels of God, that's it. That's all you get. You don't get any words. You don't get that trembling in fear. You don't get the sentiment, I'm concerned about this and that. And if you'll do this, I'll do that. You don't have any dialogue. Any God's not even appearing. It's the angels of God. You're missing a lot of the details. In fact, you look back at the first time God appears to Jacob, it's got lots of good details. You look at this now, not so much. It's as if it's just in passing. It's as if it's become, okay, expected maybe or commonplace or something. Here's what I would propose. When God appears to us when, for the first time, when God makes himself real to us, it's a big deal. We make note of, of the details of it. But as you grow in your life with God, you get to where you expect to be seeing God <laughs> or being visited by God or hearing from God such that you don't need that powerful detail-laden elements that you had the first time. And so it's as if, as we're reading the story, this sounds like it's just another appearance of God to him in a sense. How can you say that, though? How can you say just another appearance of God. How can you say just another appearance of the angels? There is one thing that stands out about this, though. Even though there's no discussion, it's the name of the place. The name of the place that he gives it. Mahanaim. It means two camps. Two camps. Well, whose camps is he referring to? Jacob's referring to two camps. Is he referring to his camp and Laban's? No, Laban's already broken camp. Laban and his camp have moved on. They've gone back. It's Jacob's camp and the camp of the angels of the Lord, the camp of the angels of God. 
he sees the angels of God as if they're camped out. Now, you remember the first time that God appeared to him, he called it the house of God. A house is a more permanent structure. A house is a place, a location. It's not something you take down the tent poles and move on to the next place, but a camp. A camp is a transitory place. And the word can be used to describe a military camp. It's as if, perhaps, in describing it as a camp, or God's camp, or these two camps, my camp and God's camp, the camp of the angels of God, that they're following me, that God has commissioned them to follow me, to go with me, to be with me on my adventures, on my journeys, as if God has been with me all along. He sent his angels all along to be with me these 20 years, as I've seen the evidence of. And now the angels of God are with me today, just as he promised they would be from the start. And they're going to continue with me into the unknown that I'm about to go into. As if God has sent his angels, his messengers, to attend my way to protect me. Would God do anything different for us? No, he wouldn't. God would send his angels to protect us as well. You'll see there that I've got on that worksheet that I handed out the first one to fill in. When God designs his people for great trials... He prepares them by great comforts. And I would say seeing these angels camped could provide great comfort for the trial he knows that he's about to endure. He's got to reconcile with his brother. That's a trial. It's a big unknown. It's a big fear. How is that going to turn out? It would be nice right now to find that God is giving you a message that says, I am attending you. I am giving my angels to take charge and watch over you. He's not traveling alone. Please. just to confirm that that still happens. Okay, yes, please. And I talk to Suzanne, tells me, and this is so true, God sends her comfort in ways that are just remarkable because of the, the weight of her trial. Isn't God good? I mean, it would be one thing to learn about the way that God deals with people in Genesis chapter 32 and to be disappointed if God doesn't still deal with us that way now. That as if God maybe since then in the thousand years of years that have passed pulled the plug and said, you're on your own. People, see how you can do it without me, right? <laughs> I'm glad he doesn't do that. I'm glad he still actively involves himself in our lives as Suzanne would be able to testify. And I'm sure any of you could say at this table when you were through your most difficult times that you were able to see that God does send you what you need to get through those difficult times. When God designs his people for great trials, he prepares them by great comforts. Uh, That's not my wording. That's Matthew Henry's. As you can see, I've given credit to Matthew Henry there. So the difficult trial that's ahead of him, obviously, is that he's got to see his brother. He's probably trying to decide, how am I going to do this? In verse 3, we start to see how this unfolds. Then Jacob sent messengers before him to Esau, his brother, in the land of Seir, the country of Edom. So Jacob is sending messengers in that direction, by the way, that's the same word. The angels of God and this word right here, messengers, same word. It's 17 times it appears in Genesis. In every other instance by the context, it's clear that it's talking about angelic messengers. But here we have it referring to earthly messengers. So he's in Mahanaim. He is sending out messengers to go and see if you can find my brother Esau. Sounds like a prudent move. Maybe even plant a seed in his mind that I'm not here to hurt him, that I'm not here to claim the stuff I stole from him, (laughs) all right? Because you remember the last time, what happened? He was running away from his murderous brother because he had stolen the birthright and the blessing, Mm -hmm. right? It wasn't a pretty picture. He was looking at being murdered because he had actually stolen things of value from his oldest brother, his older brother Esau. 
He stole the birthright. He stole the blessing. He was a trickster, and here he is. He's coming back. What would his brother think? What is Esau going to think as he hears that I'm heading back into the land? Is Esau going to be afraid that I'm coming into the land to claim those things I stole from him? You know, because I I received them in word, but I haven't received them in deed yet. Is he maybe going to be concerned that I'm coming to assert myself as authority over the tribe to take the property that belongs to me because I'm now the heir. I received those things by trickery and deceit, and now I'm coming in. Maybe my brother's going to think of me as a threat. In these last 20 years, God has blessed me in the land with Laban. I'm abundantly blessed. It's almost as if I didn't need to go through all that trickstery with the birthright and the blessing because God has made more than up for it. And here I am coming back in the land. If Esau hears I'm coming back, he might think I'm a threat. I'm concerned about that. I'm concerned I've never heard that he doesn't want to murder me. So for all intents and purposes, i got to assume he still does want to murder me. So he sends these messengers out to go see if they can find Esau. Uh, By the way, you see there in the end of verse 3, in the land of Seir, the country of Edom. Those three words there, Seir, that word means hairy. And country, it conjures up recollections of the field that Esau used to hunt in. Remember Esau, the hairy man? He was born hairy. And he was a man of the country. He was a man of the field. He would go out and hunt game out in the field and in the country. And Edom, red. So here in the last part of this verse, we have three words that are kind of like knife stabs in the sense of all that was painful about the past with Esau. So you have Harry, that reminds you of Esau. You have in the field or in the country, that reminds you of Esau. And then you have the red, the red of his hair and the red stew. That he gave everything away for with that little bowl of stew. So, so it's going to be painful, uh, but we've got to seek restoration. That's what Jacob's realizing. He's got to seek restoration. Verse 4, as we get there, and he commanded them. He's telling his people, right, this is what you're going to say when you go see Esau. If you find him, I want you to say this. And he commanded them, saying, Speak thus to my lord Esau, thus your servant, Jacob. You can tell he's trying to use words that try to placate his brother a little bit. Thus your servant Jacob says, I have dwelt with Laban and stayed there until now. All right, dwelt there. That word for dwelt means temporarily. All right, I've been with Laban. I've been in Haran. It's temporary. Wasn't meaning to ever stay away from you guys. I'm coming back home. And and I've stayed with Laban. And that word for stayed can also carry with it the idea of being delayed. As if, hey, I wanted to come back earlier, but I was delayed. And we remember 20 years. Yep, Laban delayed him quite a bit. I was (laughs) delayed there until now. Verse 5, I have oxen, donkeys, flocks, and male and female servants, and I have sent to tell my Lord that I may find favor in your sight. He's describing, I have lots of possessions, as if almost to say, I'm not coming to claim anything. I'm not coming to be a threat to anything you possess. I'm not coming to say that the possessions of the family, the tribe, those belong to me. I'm not coming for that reason. And in fact, he, he lays it out. He shows his cards that I may find favor in your sight. This word for favor in your sight, it's a very common word in the Old Testament. 69 times that we run across this word. It's actually translated as grace more often than it's translated as favor. 38 times translated as grace, 26 times as favor. Grace and favor in your sight. He's looking for grace and favor in the sight of his brother Esau. Grace and favor. You know, it's fine to be looking for grace and favor in the eyes of somebody else, but I would say more important than that is finding grace and favor in the eyes of God. We should, above all things, seek grace, seek favor in the eyes of God 
and then seek favor in the eyes of, of our fellow man. Our seat of application number two there has got to fill in. It's fine to desire favor in the sight of others, but do not rest until you have secured the same in God's sight. So he's hoping to find favor in the eyes of his brother. The first time we've run across this word for favor, it's in Genesis chapter 6, verse 8, and it's, it's kind of interesting there. It's speaking of Noah. Noah found favor in the eyes of God. Noah found favor in the eyes of God. And that's what we should be seeking, to find favor in the eyes of God. That would be our first priority of life, is to find favor in the eyes of God. So how do you find favor in the eyes of God? Do you do good works? Do you be a good person? I gave money to the homeless man outside. Therefore, I found favor in the eyes of God, and I can go and do everything else I want to do in life. If we haven't reconciled with God with our sins, if we haven't recognized that we are sinful creatures, we, need, we should probably start there. Recognize that our sins have separated us from our holy God. And to seek forgiveness. To admit that we are imperfect creatures and we need his forgiveness. We can't earn salvation on our own. To surrender ourselves to him as our Lord. And then we can find favor in the eyes of God. Interestingly, forgiveness as well. Finding favor in the eyes of God and finding forgiveness. That's how we start. All right, so as we're ending verse 5 then, he's giving instructions to his servants. He's saying, this is what I want you to say to my brother if you find him. You might not find him, but go see if you can find him. Go send him this message. I'm not a threat. That's what I want you to convey to him. And then bring back word as to what happens, right? So that's basically the instructions he's got. But what has he got going on in his mind? What is Jacob hoping? Is Jacob hoping... Boy, I hope Esau's happy to see me. That would probably be unrealistic. He's probably more practical, and being the trickster that he's been used to being, he's probably looking for some way to have some advantage. And I wouldn't be surprised if he's thinking to himself, Boy, I hope, I hope Esau's not as big and strong as he used to be. <laughs> he, he used to carry those big animals back into the camp on his shoulders, and I was just the guy that washed the dishes. I hope he's not lifting weights like he used to. I hope he's laid off the sauce a little bit. I, I hope maybe he's gotten fat. Maybe he got himself a beer belly. You know, Maybe he's gotten lazy. Maybe he's got some kids, and maybe he's tripped and injured himself. Maybe he walks permanently with a limp. Wouldn't that be great? That would give me an advantage. <laughs> he's probably hoping that Esau is not the big physical threat that he used to remember him being. It has been 20 years. He perhaps has gotten old and bald and fat, but we can't assume that. So he sends his servants off with this expectation, this hope that they'll bring back word, hopefully a good word, and we do. We get the messengers coming back. Verse 6, after some time having passed, we don't know how long. Somebody mind reading verse 6. And the messengers returned to Jacob saying, We came to your brother Esau, and he also is coming to meet you, and 400 men are with him. Ooh. <laughs> How many men? 400 men are coming with him. Okay, I have something to admit. I don't like cell phones a whole lot. I do find them to be useful, but when I use them for text messages, sometimes they, they, there's an area of cell phone use that really bothers me, and that is they don't convey tone, right? So words, you can convey words without tone, and sometimes tone is misinterpreted. All right, And you can say something one way, and maybe it was heard the other way. Or you can hear it this way, and it, no, it was intended to be this way. So I'm thinking, as I'm reading these words, 
What's the tone? When the servants come back, when the messengers come back, and they say, we came to your brother Esau, and he is also coming to meet you, and 400 men are with him. I wish I could hear the tone. Because if they said it in this tone, we came to your brother Esau, and he's also coming to meet you, and 400 men are with him. All right? That's a different tone than... We came to your brother Esau, and he is also coming to meet you. And 400 men are with him. There's a difference in tone, and it conveys a different reception on on how that message is received. Well, I don't hear the tone by reading the words. You don't hear the tone by reading the words. We're not standing in the place that Jacob is standing. Jacob, however, does hear something of a tone. And I'm assuming, factoring in the tone that he gets... Leading to verse 7, so Jacob was greatly afraid and distressed. Here comes your brother with 400 men. Now, 400 men. Really, what can you accomplish with 400 men? Uh, If you remember, Abraham, back in Genesis chapter 14, he took off after an army of multiple kings with their multiple armies. And Abraham went with 318 a substantially smaller number of men after trained armies and came out victorious. And Abraham was not a soldier. Abraham was not a man of the field. Abraham was not the mighty hunter. Esau is the mighty hunter. Esau is the man of the field. Esau is the man who's good with the weapon, with the bow. In fact, I'm imagining then, what does it look like in Esau's camp when the men show up and say, we've been sent by your brother? He's on the way. He's just over the ridge over there. He's a couple mountains away, maybe. What is Esau's response? Esau doesn't know why Jacob's coming back. I grew up with Westerns, right? So my tendency when I read this was to think of the, you know, the outlaw who's hiding out in the hills, and he's got the tattered cowboy hat, and he's got the bandana tied cockeyed around his neck, and he's got the scruffiness that's going on. He says to his men, that's right, you know, and he calls them all up, and they all jump on their horses, and he's got the saliva coming down mixed with all the, you know, chewing tobacco and whatnot. But I would be in error to maintain that picture here because, I, A, I'm off by a whole lot of years, all right, and B, it's a different setting. The setting is more likely, uh, you picture Esau, he's a man of the field, right? So I'm maybe more appropriately, he's got the necklace with the claws and the teeth on it, you know? <laughs> maybe he's, he's a hairy man. We remember that. And he's probably big because he carries those carcasses back into camp. And those carcasses are pretty heavy. So he's probably a big, hairy dude. He's probably pretty built. And he's got that necklace, like I said, with the claws and the teeth on it. I'm even imagining he's got that animal skin that's on him with the head of the animal above his head, like the skull of a bear or a lion above his head, and the hair of this animal draped down his back, you know. I'm imagining maybe some grotesque earrings and maybe even a nose piercing or something. This is the man. He's even worse than the cowboy. All right, so this is the man who's saying, let's ride. He's the one saying to his 400 men, let's go. And if you're a leader of 400 men, you're probably among the biggest, baddest of the 400 men. But if you're the leader of them, they probably want to be like you. So they probably look like him too. That's probably going to be a scary sight. So when the servants see this, when the servants find out this is the brother, oh dear, and when they send message back, he's coming, 400 with him, it's probably the tone is, help, you know, this is going to be scary. So this is the situation. These are the people. This is what it probably looked like as these 400 men and Esau are apparently coming to see Jacob. Esau is on the way. 
So verse 7, so Jacob was greatly afraid and distressed. And what does he do? Somebody might reading the rest of verse 7 there. Tell us what he does. He divided his household along with the flocks and herds and camels into two camps. Into two camps. Into two companies. Mahanaim, you remember, is two camps. It's the camp of the angels of God. And it's Jacob's camp. Perhaps Jacob takes a clue on the name of the place and says, you know what, that two camps thing, that's not a bad idea. And he decides to take up all of his family and belongings, his flocks, his children, his wives, and divide them into two. But why? Why would he do that? Verse 8, somebody mind reading that? It tells us why. For he said, if Esau comes to the one company and attacks it, then the company which is left will escape. Excellent. Thank you, Levette. His intention is, if my brother comes and attacks one of these camps, I can suffer the loss of an entire half of everybody associated with me. I can suffer the loss of half of everything I have, but maybe I'll still be able to get away with half of my family and half of my possessions, half of my flocks. How awkward is that? I mean, when you remember your brother 20 years ago, he wanted to kill you, and now your concern is he might not just kill you. He might kill half of everybody related to you in your big camp, split the camp in two, then maybe only half of them might have to die. Oh, that's kind of an awkward place to be, to think that you could be going to face your brother who's capable of doing something like this. I'd almost be tempted to say, maybe I should go back to Laban. <laughs> maybe it was better over there, but he's already made a pact. He's already made a pact and burned his bridges that he's not going to go back that way. And God has already called him forward. When God calls you to go in a direction in your life, that is not the time to get cold feet and try to turn back and cross a burned bridge. All right. God will call us in places in our lives where we need to continue moving forward in a direction that maybe feels like at the risk of our lives, at the risk of everything good for everybody in our family. Sometimes God calls us to places, and we've seen this time and again as we've moved through the book of Genesis, where it's scary, and I don't know how we're going to make it, and I don't know what's ahead, and I could die going in that direction. And what does God show us? He is faithful every single time. God keeps his promises every single time. And when God sent the angels of God to appear to him in verse 1, what did he see? I'm with you. I'm protecting you. I'm sending my angels with you. I've protected you for the last 20 years. You can trust me to move forward. I'm not going to stop protecting you now. I have called you back to this place, and you are to come back to this place. And it is going to involve meeting your brother, and it is going to involve reconciling. It is going to involve getting that taken care of. We have encouragement from Psalm 34, 7. says, The angel of the Lord encamps all around those who fear him and delivers them. We can hold on to that promise just as Jacob, well, it was after Jacob's time that that was written. But Jacob sees the principle in what's happening around him. The angel of the Lord encamps all around those who fear him and delivers them. That's from Psalm 34 to verse 7. Matthew Henry says something here about this. Times of fear should be times of prayer. Whatever causes fear should drive us to our knees, to our God. Times of fear should be our times of prayer. Genesis 32, 9. Somebody mind reading that one. This is the beginning of a prayer. And Jacob said, O God of my father Abraham and God of my father Isaac, the Lord who said to me, Return to your country and to your family, and I will deal well with you. Excellent. Thank you, Mike. 
Here we have Jacob beginning to pray. He's taking his place of fear and he's turning it into a place of prayer. Jacob says, oh God, when he says, oh God, right there, it's Elohim. That's the name of the creator, the creator God that we're familiar with from Genesis chapter one. Oh God, that's Elohim of my father, Abraham and God, Elohim again, of my father, Isaac, the creator God is kind of a distant God in a sense. A person who goes from not believing in God will sometimes transition into a place where they do believe in God in the sense that, yeah, I believe there is a God. I believe he's the creator. But it's not a personal relationship thing for them. They've gone from a place not believing in God to a place of, okay, I acknowledge, I believe that there is a God, that there is a creator, there is a designer. I believe in God, Elohim. But they haven't yet come to the place where he says next, of my father Isaac, the Lord. That's Yahweh, Yod-Heh-Vav-Heh, or Jehovah. All right? This is the God of salvation, the God of redemption. This is a personal relationship God. It sounds like Jacob is moving from believing in the God that's out there to believing in the God that's close to me. And from a God that's distant to a God that's close. O God of my father Abraham, God of my father Isaac and the Lord, Yahweh, who said to me, return to your country and to your family and I will deal with you. He's praying to God. This is the first time that Jacob ever refers to the Lord as Yahweh. This is the first time he ever refers to God other than Elohim. So it sounds like he's maturing in his relationship. Verse 10, I am not worthy of the least of all the mercies and of all the truth which you have shown your servant. For I crossed over this Jordan with my staff and now I have become two companies. You remember when he crossed over, his concern was, will you take care of me? Are you going to give me food? Are you going to give me clothing? And what has he got? He's got so much. He's got a camp worthy of being able to split in half and being able to survive if one is taken and the other is left. And we see here another thing as well. In verse 10, this is seat of application number three on your worksheets. None of us are worthy. None of us are worthy of his mercy and truth. And I would even put in there and blessings. Jacob acknowledges he is not worthy. I am not worthy of the least of all the mercies and of all the truth which you have shown to your servant. And then he describes the blessings of God bountifully in his life. None of us are worthy of his mercies and his blessings and truth. Verse 11, deliver me, I pray, deliver me. The word that's used there is the same word that was used of David when he delivered a sheep from the jaws of a wild animal. He's looking for that same kind of deliverance. Deliver me, I pray, from the hand of my brother, from the hand of Esau, for I fear him lest he come and attack me and the mother with the children. Seat of application number four, submit to God's ability to protect rather than relying solely on your own. He's recognizing, he's acknowledging there in verse 11, he can't protect himself. He would do what he can, and we should as well. We should be prepared to do whatever it takes to protect our family. But you know what? There's a limit to our abilities. And if you don't have God supplying what you need, then your limited abilities are only going to get you so far. All right? He is looking for something beyond his limited abilities. He's looking for God to deliver. He's looking for God to protect. So seed of application number four, submit to God's ability to protect rather than relying solely on your own. And then verse 12, for you said, I will surely treat you well and make your descendants as the sand of the sea, which cannot be numbered for multitude. Your descendants as the sand of the sea. Did you know that nowhere prior to this, do we ever have any record of God saying to Jacob, your descendants shall be as the sand of the sea? We actually had God saying that to Abraham. The sand of the sea, your descendants as the sand of the sea. We saw that in Genesis 13, 16, as God's promise to Abraham. 
And then we saw it in Genesis chapter 22, verse 17, but we never saw it made to Jacob. The closest we had made to Jacob was the dust of the earth. When God said, I will make your offspring like the dust of the earth over in Genesis chapter 28, verse 14. So here, what's going on? It sounds like the God who used to have a relationship with my fathers, the God with whom my fathers had a true relationship, that one true God that my grandfather Abraham used to know, that one true God that my father Isaac knows is now my God. It sounds like he's finally transitioning where the God of his fathers is now becoming his God. Sometimes we raise children who think because my parents have such a great relationship with God, I'm good with God too. But we need to teach them that God has no grandchildren. God only has children. You're either a child of God or you're nothing. If you want a relationship with God, be a child of God, but he's not going to let you be a grandchild. You don't get to ride on your parents' spiritual coattails. You need to have a personal relationship with God for yourself. And it sounds like that's happening here. He's making that transition where instead of recognizing, boy, this is a great God of my dad. This is a great God of my grandfather. No, this is a great God, and he has a relationship with me. We need to have personal relationships with God. Matthew Henry says regarding this prayer, he says, there cannot be a better pattern for true prayer than this. Here is a thankful acknowledgement of former undeserved favors, a humble confession of unworthiness, a plain statement of his fears and distress, a full reference of the whole affair to the Lord, and resting all his hopes on him. The best we can say to God in prayer is what he has said to us. And that's how we end verse 12. And looking at the very beginning of verse 13, we'll end with this. So he lodged there that same night. You know, when you're in a place where you're faced with no way out and nothing but worry, what do you do? It should lead you to pray. And then after prayer, lodge there for the night. You can sleep. (laughs) You can rest in peace that you've given it over to God. Now it's in his hands. There's nothing further you can do. And we'll find out that there is other stuff that he does to prepare for meeting his brother. But for the overall picture of everything, he's turning it over to God and saying, I give it over to you. I can't do this. I can't protect my family. I can't do anything to secure favor in my brother's eyes any more than I can by praying to you. I give it over to you, Lord. And so that's where we're left off for the end of today's lesson. Heavenly Father, we pray that you would help us. Lord, where we're in places where we need to do what needs to be done to restore relationships, we pray that you would help us to make movements in those directions. And though, Lord, the threats might be there, though there might be hostility, though we might expect nothing but bad to come out of it, that you call us to seek reconciliation and restoration. If there are people in our lives, Lord, that we need to move in that direction toward, we pray that you would help us, guide us, and show us that you go with us just as you showed Jacob that you're going with him in his endeavor to seek restoration with his brother, We pray, God, also that you would help us to submit our worries and our cares over to you, to cast all of our cares upon you, for you care for us. Help us to recognize that you surround us with your armies and that you seek to protect us, those of us that have submitted ourselves to you. Help us, Lord, as we seek to be treated with grace and favor in the eyes of the people of the world, to not set that as a priority anywhere in front of or in place of seeking your favor, finding favor in your eyes. 
Help us, Lord, to do that if we've never done it before by submitting to you, acknowledging you as Lord, and finding forgiveness when we find favor. Thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 All right. You guys have a wonderful week.